conflict, and this church in Corinth had many conflicts. And tonight we'll see Paul do that again, perhaps in a quintessential Pauline way. Paul is writing to a church that has adopted the ideals and the values of a pagan culture. They were judging the quality of preaching and teaching and the quality of theology according to the world's standards. And Paul wants to correct that false evaluation. He wants to do it and replace that false evaluation with an offensive view of the cross. And we'll see, too, as we examine Paul's argument, that this temptation isn't gone. This temptation to adopt the world's views and the world's standards, the world's evaluation. It's alive and well. It's here among us. It's it's in the air that we breathe. And as we consider tonight the simple message of the cross as utter foolishness to the world, we'll see that it is actually instead the power of God. And so let's read together Paul's words, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll read verse 17, and then we'll focus on verse 18 tonight. Hear the word of our Lord. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Thus ends the reading of God's perfect and holy word for us. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would, by the foolishness of the cross, make us more like your Son, who hung on that cross in utter folly, so the world thinks, that we might be saved for your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's begin by looking at our text and ask some questions. In verse 18, specifically, let's start with, what is Paul talking about in verse 18 when he says, the word of the cross, or the message of the cross, your translation might say. What is the word of the cross? Well, Paul, in verse 17, has just condemned the preaching of the gospel in words of eloquent wisdom, or words of human wisdom, words of clever speech, we might say. And Paul is condemning those who would, in the name of showy and impressive rhetoric, so proclaim the message of the cross in a way that actually guts it of its power. And we looked last time at several ways that someone could do that. But for us tonight, when we look at Paul in verse 18 saying the word of the cross, we, meet, we need to remember that he's talking about the very heart of the gospel, the very core, the essence of the message of salvation. The words of human wisdom may sound very much like the word of the cross, but in reality, it's a dangerous opposite. Human wisdom is of human origin, as we will see, but the word of the cross is purely of divine origin. Human wisdom is impressive. It elevates men. It's lovely. It's winsome. It's pleasing to listen to. But the word of the cross is offensive to a natural man. It humbles him. It humiliates him, and outside of divine intervention, it actually repels him. It's repulsive. In short, the word of the cross is none other than the simple proclamation of salvation by Christ's substitutionary death in the place of sinners. Paul summarizes it later in this book in chapter 15, verse 3 and 4. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried and that he was raised on, a thir- on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. 
So what does he mean when he says the gospel? He means that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised from the dead, all in accordance with the scriptures. Or we could look to the message we just read that Pastor Cole just led us to in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died as our substitute, died in our place. He bore our sins, the punishment we deserved. And he died and was buried and was raised on the third day, securing our own life in him. That's the simple word of the cross. But when that word is proclaimed faithfully, what happens? What is the effect of this word of the cross? Well, Paul makes very clear in our verse that the word of the cross is seen as folly. It's utter foolishness to the natural man. He won't believe it. He can't believe it. We can think back, for example, to Acts 17. Paul is speaking before the Greek philosophers of the age at Mars Hill at the Areopagus. He's before the intellectual elite, before the philosophers, the educated ones. And when he proclaims a simple message that Christ came and died in the place of sinners and was resurrected three days later, what happens? Verse 32 tells us that many of his hearers mocked him. They sneered at him, we could translate it. It was utter foolishness to them. The word of the cross is unbelievable to sinful men. And thus the effect of preaching the word of the cross is that the entire world is divided into two groups in relation to how they think about that word. And Paul describes them here as the perishing and those who are being saved. Those who think that the cross, the word of the cross, is foolishness, is folly, are described as the perishing. They're the dying ones. They're not merely on the path of death, but they're actually in the process of it. It's an end times, an eschatological categorization that he's using. They aren't dead yet, but the, the end is coming. And if nothing changes, their fate is sealed. And correspondingly, Paul speaks of believers as those who are being saved. And here we have, yet again, Paul using already not yet language or inaugurated eschatology. That is, there's something that's already in Paul's thought, and yet there's still a not yet Element. Something has been begun in the work of Christ, but it is not yet finished. Something is certain and sure and certified, but it's not yet consummated. Paul will speak throughout his letters in all three tenses. We have been saved by Christ's resurrection. And we are being saved by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we will be finally saved on that last day. I've mentioned such things in previous sermons, so I won't belabor them here. But to answer our question, what is the effect of the cross? What does the word of the cross do? Is that it divides. It divides the world into distinct categories. Those that are perishing and those that are being saved. And so a next question for us is, well, why is the word of the cross folly, foolishness, to those that are perishing? Why does the natural man reject it as utter foolishness, as stupidity, as something that's unbelievable, something to sneer at and ridicule and mock? Well, I'm going to give us at least three clear reasons that the natural man thinks that the word of the cross is folly. First, the word of the cross is folly because it confounds flawed human logic. The word of the cross confounds the natural man's flawed human logic. They believe that it's utter foolishness. It doesn't make sense. 
Consider the Corinthians. They were part of the Roman Empire at the time. They were under the influence of Roman ideals, which prioritized power, domination, glory, honor, success. Sounds like America today. Power, success, glory, fame, we could say. And just like Roman Corinth, today also the message of the cross offends these culturally prized ideals. Our culture loves beautiful things and powerful things, sophisticated things, successful people, people that overcome, people that build themselves up and rise to the top, people that impress, people that win friends and influence people. But the message of the cross, the simple proclamation of the word of Christ's substitutionary death in the place of sinners will not garner you any of that in the world. In fact, if you faithfully preach the word of the cross, you'll end up with the opposite of the cultural ideals. You'll divide rather than unify. You'll separate. You'll send people away. You'll repel people. But not only does the message of the cross contradict human ideals of success, it also offended the Roman listeners in a powerful way. The Romans believed that their gods had varying levels of power. They had a hierarchy of power, a ranking system with gods at the top and lesser gods down. So Jupiter or Zeus was at the top and other lesser gods followed behind him. But the message of the cross turned that upside down. You see, the cross says that true power is not in domination, but in a willing submission for the sake of others, a loving laying down. True power is not in having an army of servants who are at your beck and call. True power is instead stooping down and becoming a servant. True power is not having millions of adoring fans, but instead simple faithfulness to the Father, even at the great cost of being deserted and all alone. True power is indeed being willing to die for the sake of love rather than clamoring for your life at any cost. But the cross doesn't just contradict Roman views of deity and power. It also offends their sensibilities. To speak of a cross in Roman terms is to speak of something vulgar and heinous, something dark, disturbing even. Cicero once wrote of the crucifixion of a Roman citizen that the very word cross should be far removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from their very thoughts, from their eyes and their ears. The very image or word of a cross is offensive. It's associated with all sorts of evil and dark themes. D.A. Carson goes so far as to say that the image of a cross in Roman times would carry the same imagery today as a mushroom cloud over Hiroshima or a mass grave at Auschwitz. The very symbol of a cross was repulsive. It's dark and evil. Thus, for a natural Roman to hear the message of a divine son dying on a cross is to hear a message of utter foolishness. Gods can't die, especially not the death of a gruesome traitor of the empire. That's inconceivable. And not only is it hard to believe, it's actually offensive to me that you would suggest such a thing. Thus, the word of the cross defies human logic, that God would come as a poor man rather than a prince, that he would come as a child child of a commoner, of a lowly carpenter, a menial laborer, rather than coming as the son of a king or an emperor. And especially laughable to the Romans is that God would choose to come as a Jew rather than a Roman or a Greek. 
It's inconceivable. Nonsense. To think that God would come and to ride on a donkey rather than leading fleets, armies behind him riding on the back of a white stallion. It's foolishness. And his deliverance, this foolish Christ that you speak of, his deliverance brings very little change, they would say, humanly speaking. It's foolishness. See, deliverance should mean that an occupying nation was toppled, that a ruler was defeated and deposed, that a nation was freed from tyranny. And in their estimation, Jesus didn't do any of that. His deliverance didn't look like much at all. His people didn't change political allegiances or rulers. They stayed where they were. They had the same jobs. They didn't move. They didn't go to Mecca or to Jerusalem. They didn't change their social status. They stayed in the same household with the same marriage in the same area. So humanly speaking, the deliverance of this Christ, this foolish Christ that you speak, it didn't do anything. And so the cross offends the flawed human logic of those that are dying, of the perishing. But not only does it escape human logic, the cross is also offensive because it assaults the proud notions of the perishing. The cross assaults the proud notions of the perishing. The message of the cross is folly and offensive because it assumes that we are all sinners. And we're sinners at odds with a holy and righteous God. The message of the gospel assumes that mankind is sinful, it is fallen, and in need of saving. And people hate to hear that. They think that I may make a mistake, you know, nobody's perfect. But I'm not sinful. That's not me. That's foolishness. In fact, it's mean, it's hateful, it's spiteful. Why would you say that? We can't talk about such things like that. What's it going to do to little Billy's self-esteem? We can't talk about sin like that. It's going to make him feel bad. Don't talk about sin and blood and cross and atonement and death. That's nonsense. But not only does it offend the pride of those that are perishing, it also reminds the perishing that they're actually mortal, that they will not actually live forever. They will die one day. And people don't like to be reminded of their own death, at least not a natural man, not a man that's perishing. People live with the foolish illusion that they're not going to die. They plan and act as if they're going to live forever. And then the whole world seems shocked when somebody actually dies. Take note of Hollywood next time somebody dies. Nobody can believe it at the memorial service. It's shocking. Side note, biblically speaking... The shocking thing when somebody dies too young is actually that God let a sinner live that long to begin with, biblically speaking. That's what's shocking. Anyway, the message offends the perishing because it assumes that they're sinful and that they're mortal. But also it's folly because the message of the cross says that the sinner can't do anything about it to save himself. Not only does man need saving, which is offensive and foolish, but man can't do anything about it. He's utterly hopeless to do anything of any spiritually redemptive value. He's dead in his trespasses and sin, Paul says, Ephesians 2. He's got no hope of reaching up to God. He's lame. He's blind in the spiritual realm. And that's offensive to a natural man. How dare you insinuate, I can't do anything. I've made my way in life. I've worked my way up to the top. You can't tell me what I cannot do. And so they think the message of the cross is folly because you tell them that they can't save themselves. But it doesn't stop there. 
The word of the cross offends their pride by calling people sinners, reminding them of their mortality, telling them they can't do anything about it. But even more, it offends their pride because it tells them that they're not special. Fallen sinners like to think that they're special, that they've really done something special to deserve a special status. And they don't like it when they're told that they're just like everyone else and they're put on the same level as everyone No, we like our privileged status. We like our special treatment. And we can't go around preaching a message that takes the weak and the poor and the uneducated and the lower classes and puts them on the same level as us. We can't do that. We like special treatment for the smart and the intellectual and those that appear most holy on the outside. We like special treatment for for churches to have orderly social class structures. We like privileges earned by those with more education or those with special knowledge or those that work extra hard for themselves. But the gospel doesn't do that. It puts every man at equal footing at the base of the cross. And it gives every man the same access to the same salvation in the same Christ. No special treatment. No salvation by grace for some, but others have to work extra hard. No, from start to finish, the message of the cross is a message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, to any person who would come to Christ and believe. That's the simple, glorious message of the cross that's offensive to the proud sensibilities of the perishing. Third, the message of the cross not only offends the perishing because it contradicts their flawed logic and also offends their pride. Number three, it's offensive because it elevates God's glory in every way. The message of the cross elevates God's glory in every way. God is glorified in the message of the cross because in God's infinite wisdom, He has so crafted a method of redemption that's utterly inconceivable to a fallen man. Consider some of the ways that God is glorified In the word of the cross. In the substitutionary death of the son in the place of sinners. In a world that God himself has created. His finite and relatively insignificant subjects have rebelled and blasphemed against him. And yet God chose mercy over instant judgment and death. And with a people that didn't choose to acknowledge God as such. God instead chose to take the initiative to go and save them. God himself, the fountain of all power and all might, chose to become weak and vulnerable and an infant laying in a manger. God, the possessor of all things, gave it up and became a poor child laying in a feeding trough. God, the giver of all blessings, lived without riches and indeed had no place to lay his head, he said. God, the God of all life, willingly submitted to death at the hands of wicked sinners in order that the wicked ones of his choosing might taste of eternal life. God is the master architect of this plan of redemption. He's the effective agent from beginning to end. He took the initiative. He made the path of salvation possible. God chose to redeem a bride out of her misery and bondage. God chose to forgive that bride at the infinite cost of his own life in her place. God in Christ lived the perfect life of all righteousness in order that the bride might be made spotless again. And God will return in judgment over the rest of mankind, judging those that are perishing according to His righteousness and justice. 
Every bit of that plan of redemption is offensive to the perishing because it reminds them that God is glorious and they are not. God is sovereign and they are not. God's justice will be satisfied and they will spend an eternity under God's wrath and judgment and they hate it and they hate Him for it. It's folly. It's foolishness. Friends, if you sit here tonight and you think what I'm saying is foolishness, it's a bunch of bunk, it doesn't matter, it's an old myth, it's superstition, it's a wives' tale, it's mysticism, then I plead with you to hear the simple message of the cross. Because if you don't turn to Christ, then you will be under judgment for your sin. You will have no other sacrifice, no other means of salvation, no other option. Come to Him this night by faith and in repentance of your sins. Hear of the great love of Jesus Christ and how He's different than any other man, any other God that man could make up. Any other religion is different from Christianity. God chose to give up everything for the sake of His people. He takes on a mountain of judgment so that His people might escape the judgment that they deserve. What other God would do that? What other religion is entirely of grace from beginning to end? What other God requires nothing of you but your heart? No other religion does. Don't remain in your state as one who is perishing and remain outside of salvation. Don't remain in your folly. But for us who are believers, lest we think that we're done with folly once we've come to embrace the word of the cross, there's still remaining ways that we as believers can act, can treat the word of the cross as foolishness. Corporately, as a church, we can be like the Corinthian church. We can fall prey to changing the content or the delivery of the message of the cross and as such rob the cross of its power. That's the paradoxical nature of the message. If we try and make it better, if we try and improve it, we lose it. If we try and tweak it, we destroy it. Churches do this all the time. The message of the cross is sharp. It's cutting. And so, Pastor, let's just, let's just round the edges just, just a little bit. I mean, do we have to talk about the blood all the time? It's a little gruesome. Do we have to talk about sin? It's a, it's a little offensive. People may not come back. You have to talk about death. There's enough death in the world. We don't need to bring that in here in the church. It's a little dark. We don't need that here. And so we begin to skip over the offensive and the dark parts of Scripture. We talk about God's love and His mercy and His grace. But we never talk about His justice or His holiness or His wrath. And once you've done that, you've robbed the word of the cross of its power. That's why you see churches all the time, use all sorts of other means to get people to stay. We're going to have a raffle, we're going to have a laser show, we're going to have fireworks, we're going to show movies. Everything is substituted in order to keep people's attention. Rather than the simple, offensive foolishness of preaching the word of Christ dying in the place of sinners. They try and dress it up. Or another way that we as believers can treat the cross as folly is to Fracture and split up and divide, just like the Corinthians were doing. They were breaking into factions. I follow Paul, I follow Peter, I follow Apollos. And it was rupturing the church. But the message of the cross should be the cure to these factions in the church. That's one of the things that Paul is addressing head on at the beginning of this letter. 
In Christ, we are united to Him by faith. And when we are united to a single, unified head, then the body should also be single and unified. But we don't think that the message of the cross is enough. And so we begin to divide up according to our preferences, according to our desires. We have our own little groups of people that think and act like me, that look like me, that have the same preferences or in the same life stage with me or have the same interests or who vote like me or who look like me or who talk like me. In short, what we're saying is I don't want to be around the people that are harder to love. I want to be just around the people like me that are really easy to love. I don't want to spend time with the the sick and the lonely and the, the hurting and the annoying and the uneducated and those that vote differently and those that look differently and those that talk differently. Those people that might actually wreck my image and my reputation. I don't want to be around them. And so when we split into our little cliques, when we divide into our factions, what we're actually proclaiming with our actions is that the cross is folly. It's foolishness. The cross of Christ isn't enough to actually overcome our natural differences. Christ isn't enough to actually unify His bride. Christ's humiliation wasn't enough for us to serve and to love like He has done. In our divisions, we're actually acting like those who are perishing. And we proclaim with our actions that the cross is folly. Or how about another way? We can treat the cross as folly in the realm of our evangelism. We can be afraid to be seen as fools in the eyes of the world, and we let our fear of man keep us from speaking the message of the cross to a dying world. Rather than remembering that in the cross, God has declared us to be His beloved, and that He gives you His divine seal of affirmation in the resurrection, we're instead more concerned with how sinners, how the perishing, think about us. And thus we treat the message of the cross as folly. Or consider one more, a slightly different application. We can treat the cross as folly in our parenting when we try to do with the law what only the message of the cross can do. We can surround our kids with law. We can demand from them righteousness and obedience. We can remind them over and over again of their obligations, of their requirements, of the consequences, of their failure to measure up to God's standard and God's law. And then we wonder why they haven't come to love God. The message of the cross should undermine any harsh legalism or crushing lack of mercy because the message of the cross is a message of God's grace. God took the initiative to save God worked in your heart. It wasn't the law that made you a believer. It was the Holy Spirit working in your heart. And so we can't use the law to try and bring about only that which the word of the cross can do. Don't try and use a standard of righteousness as a means of changing a heart. Only the gospel can do that. If the law were enough to make someone a believer, then the message of the cross really is folly. Because God didn't have to come to save sinners. They could have done it on their own. They could have obeyed the law. But that's not the way it is. And so we can treat the word of the cross as folly when we seek to use the law to do what only the gospel can do. And so as a final point tonight, let me end with some good news. Paul says that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul ends this sentence with great encouragement. 
He says to us who are being saved. Paul includes himself along with the Corinthians in the batch of sinners that he's writing this letter to. Paul is with them, being saved by this foolish message of the cross. The Corinthian church, with all of its problems, with all of its factions, with its pride, with its sexual sin, with its remaining corruption, were still with Paul on the path of salvation because of the foolishness of what Christ has done on the cross. We can sometimes be so introspective, so caught up in our sins, so aware of our failings that we can begin to doubt the very message that saved us. And the simple message is this, that Christ died for your sins. Your sins are gone. Your sins have been lifted. Your sins have been paid for. They're buried in the grave and Christ has risen, guaranteeing your life. That's the simple good news of the gospel. Your failings, your sin, your weaknesses, your relapses, your backsliding are not more powerful than Christ's atonement. His work is sufficient. God doesn't look at your paltry efforts now and decide to reject you now. He's going to keep you. He will hold you. That's the good news of the gospel. It is sufficient. Christ's work on the cross is enough. That's why he said it is finished. It's a perfect love that has been put on display for you. And it's a perfect love that is holding you. The cross is the power of God for all who believe. Consider all the ways that the foolish message of the cross is God's power to those of us who are being saved. It's simply by understanding and believing the message of the cross that God converts sinners and makes them His own. He brings them back to Himself by means of the word of the cross in its simple delivery and proclamation. His Holy Spirit grants them a new heart of faith and repentance when they hear this word of the cross. He uses the same word of the cross as the power to preserve us in this life. When we're depressed, He uses the word of the cross to comfort us. When we're prideful, He uses the word of the cross to humble us. When we're discouraged, he uses the word of the cross to encourage us. When we're despairing, he uses the word of the cross to bring us joy. When we're feeling weak, he uses the word of the cross to remind us of his power. And when we're unsettled in this life, he uses the word of the cross to bring us peace. And when we're standing before him on the final day, it's the word of the cross that will finally save us. Not our works, not our strength, not our cleverness or eloquent words of wisdom, not our rhetoric, not our polished theology, not our wisdom, but the simple foolishness of God in Christ dying in our place for our sins so that we might have eternal life in Him. May we be ever quick to be fools in the eyes of the world and join in Paul in believing this simple, foolish message of Christ on the cross. And we'll close tonight with one more act of utter foolishness. We'll take the Lord's table together. The world cannot conceive how juice and bread have any meaningful significance in the life of the church or in the life of a believer. Why would they celebrate the foolish message of the cross in such a gross way? Body? Blood? Disgusting. But to those of us who believe... This is a picture of the very power of God. It is an act of remembrance of Christ's body broken in your place and Christ's blood shed for your cleansing. This is a table for any and all who believe, who call on Christ's name, those who are being saved through the folly of the cross. 
If you're like the disciples in Acts 2 who were devoted to the apostles' teaching, now found in God's Word, devoted to the fellowship of the saints and to the breaking of bread and to prayer, then we invite you to come. If you have not yet believed the foolish message of the cross, then I urge you to let the plates pass. Come to Christ, obey Him in baptism, believe on Him, and join us at the table. I'll pray and then our table servants will come. Holy Father, we praise you and thank you for the simple, foolish message of Christ dying for our sin. Of his righteousness counted to us, of our sins being washed away forever. We praise you and thank you for this gift. We thank you for this, this time, for this picture that we're about to partake. We ask that you would bless this time, that you would nourish and sustain your people, that we would feed by faith on the bread of life to his Christ himself. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Table servants, please come.